limitless. And today we're talking about the limitless love that God has for us and that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. That song is especially, or it's special to me because it's special to my father. This song reminds him of his grandmother, my great-grandmother called Granny, who lived with them for an extended period of time. And she was such a contrast to my grandmother. And let me say, I could give one message, perhaps two, about the interesting personality that was my grandmother. Um, she, uh, her love and affection for you was 100% based on performance. My young cousins, uh, one year when grandmother sent the annual Christmas remembrance, as she called it, the Christmas checks, failed to write thank you notes, and that was the end of their Christmas presents. One time, you're done. So Granny was quite a contrast because Granny loved you for who you were. And so when my dad hears this song, he always gets a little bit teary remembering uh, his Granny and remembering how she loved this song. And to tell the truth, my dad is much more of a crier. It doesn't take that much for him to get teary. And I'm quite the opposite. I am really not a crier. Um, You know, it may be surprising to you, but I'm really not all that tough. I know I look like if I were to meet you in a dark alley, I could mess you up. But truth is, I'm not that tough. About the toughest thing I've done in my life was rappelling. And every inch of that 80 feet, I was praying, God, if I get to the bottom, I will never do this again. So um, really not that tough. And when you're not tough and you're a guy, you need to brag a little bit about the little bit where you are tough, like the fact that I'm not a crier. I remember one phone conversation that I had with Dave Lance where I was telling him that I appreciated that he wasn't a crier because I'm not a crier and I don't know how to relate to it. And um, because I get confused when people cry. I'm like, what, what? But, but, um, not two hours later, we saw what I think is God's sense of humor, and that I received in the mail some music I had been waiting for. This was a band that I liked in high school and college, but I only had a mixtape. Yes, I'm that old. I had a mixtape of this band called the Judys. They're a Texas band. Really funny, really upbeat political commentary, and it was all their music, and the last song I had not heard before was a song called Keep Breathing, and it told very well the story of a young boy who loved his grandparents and wanted them to not die, <laughs> wanted them to keep breathing. And the song does a really good job with showing that obsession in his mind that he wants them to stay alive because the music itself was a little bit serious or somber, but before the music even started, there came breath sounds. <sighs> And through the whole thing, this boy is singing about, please keep breathing. In fact, here's how the first verse went. Well, Grandpa said he'd never leave, but I was young and should believe such lies. Grandpa, he would frighten me every time he'd close his eyes. I'd say, keep breathing, keep breathing. You're old and it's not easy, but you must, you must keep breathing. (sighs) And I am sitting there saying, I told Lance I don't cry. I told Lance I don't cry. I was very close to my mother's parents, my grandparents growing up. And so then came verse 2. Well, Grandma, she once was young. At least that's what she told me. And I would feel the air run through her lungs when she'd pick me up and hold me. I'd say, oh, keep breathing, keep breathing. You're old and it's not easy, but you must you must keep breathing, and I was a puddle. I was, I lost it, and I realized that to, 
If the not crying is my Superman of toughness, my kryptonite is stories or songs or movies about loss of a child or a child losing a parent, something like that. That is really where I can, I kind of get more emotional, even though I don't in most cases. And I realize that this also applies to the movie The Passion of the Christ, which is a very graphic depiction of the suffering. That's what the word passion originally meant, suffering. The suffering that Jesus went through directly before and during his crucifixion. And there is a scene in this movie that really made me, really made me weepy. And it was Mary, Jesus' mother, seeing him fall while carrying his cross and remembering when Jesus was about five years old and he fell and she could run to him and pick him up and make him feel better. And then she couldn't in this situation. And it just lost it. In fact, this is such a good depiction. I asked the guys to show the video. So I'd like to show you this scene from The Passion of the Christ. Well, I made it through that time, but I didn't make it through the first time. I like this movie a lot. It's because it reminds us of the stark reality of what Jesus went through during the crucifixion. I think it's really easy, especially when we see the crucifix a lot, to, to have it become kind of a symbol. Because I'm, when you see the crucifix, Jesus is wounded in his hands and his feet. Sometimes there's a little blood on the head maybe one on his side, but for the most part, it is an unwounded body, and his face looks almost restful. You know, he's kind of like that with his closed eyes, and the reality was very, very far from that. Crucifixion was a terrible execution, so terrible that citizens of Rome were not allowed to be executed by crucifixion, it was considered so awful that just being born a citizen meant you would never go through a crucifixion. I've described in the past what the death from crucifixion is like. 
Uh, in preparing for this message, I realized that it's not 100% certain what had been thought for a very long time was, uh, well, first of all, you know, they nailed the wrist through the bone of the wrist to the cross. This is your median nerve. That's the nerve where you get carpal tunnel, if you get carpal tunnel. But this would have caused searing pain through the arm and to the end of the fingers, also pain in the feet, but you were flexed. And so as the weight of your body pulled you down, you couldn't exhale. So to be able to exhale, you had to pull up against the nails to breathe out, and then you would do this up and down for hours. Some say there is some evidence that maybe on the cross they had a seat of some kind. It might have been a horn. Some, some things describe it as a horn. And so in that case, with the excruciating pain, the death was more likely due to systemic shock. But either way, it was a horrific, painful execution that Jesus went through for us. And it was the execution of an innocent. I want to set the scene a bit. Let's remember what happened just a week before the crucifixion. And I'm going to Apologize a little bit in advance because uh, my, my verses that I'm quoting are pretty long, but I think it's important because this is the Holy Scripture about what Jesus went through for us. It says in John 12, verses 12 through 16, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means praiseworthy. It's a form of adulation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, that I have this in italics, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, seeing your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This is a reference to Zechariah 9.9. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, meaning raised from the dead, did they realize that these things had been written about him. And these things had been done to him. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament about what the Messiah would be, kind of right and left, and the disciples weren't putting it together. By the way, it says they come with palm branches. They were going to put the palm branches in front of him, in front of the donkey, symbolically saying, you know, you are so praiseworthy that you should not touch the ground. Your animal should not touch the ground. I so, so wanted to see if I could get Pastor Dave to put palm branches in front of me as I came up here today. You know, I could say it was for illustrative purposes, right? But, but he, he wasn't here, so he didn't get to do that. Jesus was, this is called Palm Sunday. This is, we celebrate this today, Palm Sunday. And it was a week before the crucifixion. Jesus was beloved by many in Israel. They greeted him with great honor, but the religious leaders of the day called the Pharisees, they weren't happy at all. In fact, a few verses later in John, we learn now that the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, this was a miracle Jesus did, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Jealousy, fear of losing their power. They should have been the people responsible for connecting people to God, but they were concerned about their power. They did not like his popularity. They also didn't like that he told stories that put them in a bad light and actually said directly that they were hypocrites. 
So the religious leaders put their terrible political plan into action. Now I'm reading from Luke chapter 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread called Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus and were afraid of the people. Notice that? Afraid of losing their power. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. This was the twelve disciples, the twelve people that he had poured his life into for years. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present Closed doors, behind the doors, not in the light of day. Bribery with the religious leaders of the day. Why was this happening? Well, we know it was happening to fulfill the prophecy because God had a plan for the Messiah. But elsewhere in scriptures, it says that Jesus spoke as one with authority. That means they had heard what the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had to say. But when Jesus said it, it made sense. It made sense to them. The religious leaders knew this and wanted to keep their power. You know, it says we just saw that he would be betrayed by Judas, and this is well known. It's an entire night of betrayal. Every earthly friend that Jesus had abandoned him. We know the story about Peter, who just before Jesus was arrested said, even if I have to die, I will never desert you. And Jesus said, Peter, tonight... Before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And it came to pass, and I think we normally, or I normally, focused on that as showing that Jesus was God because he knew this ahead of time, that this was going to happen. But don't forget what this means for Jesus as a person. The fact that Peter, I mean, Peter's out there swearing that he doesn't know him. And this happened with all the disciples. So on the night of his greatest need, he was abandoned by every person on earth. The people that were on earth to set about proper order, the Roman soldiers, they didn't like any Jews, much less a popular one who was thought to be a king. In John 19, we read the Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. This is humiliation, right? We often think of it as just the physical pain of the slap, but it was also being humiliated in front of a large crowd. The governor of Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate, couldn't find a reason to execute him. The government failed him. He interviewed him and said, I don't get it. Why do you, why do you Jews want to kill him? We, but Pilate was political, and Pilate was weak. As soon as the chief, I'm reading from John 19, verses 6 through 12, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he proclaimed to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, here's where Pilate's strength and moral character comes in. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Did the Jewish leaders care about Caesar? Absolutely not. They were using politics against Pilate, and Pilate was weak and sentenced Jesus to be crucified. During this crucifixion and before, it would be a time of extreme torture. I think if you're, certainly if you're an adult, I recommend the movie The Passion of the Christ to remember what Jesus went through. He was whipped with a Roman scourge. This was a whip with multiple straps, and the straps had in it pieces of bone or metal that when the whip would come across, it would grab a chunk of flesh and pull it out. This is one of the hardest things to watch in that movie. It's very, very difficult. But Jesus went through this. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and in mocking him, they gave him a reed to be a scepter, but they hit him on the crown of thorns with, uh, with the reed. He was required, as you saw in the movie, to carry his cross. It probably was not that he had to carry the whole cross, but he had to carry the cross beam. In researching this, they believed this was 50 to 100 pounds to have on your back. It was the type of uh, cross beam you'd have on a door, the top of a door. They made him carry that after the beating. They were constantly putting, they were constantly putting um, clothes onto him to mock him and then taking them off. And from what you read and what people have surmised, this gave time for the blood to kind of dry. So when they would pull it off, it would tear the wounds afresh. And that is what was on the cross, not what we see on a crucifix, right? It's not what we see on a crucifix, an unwounded body. It was a body wounded beyond recognition that would be touching and rubbing against um, the rough wood of the cross. And he survived for six hours on the cross. That is the old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, both suffering and shame. This is what Jesus went through for us. But the good news is, the hard news is uh, Good Friday. The good news is Easter. This is not the end of the story. Jesus doesn't remain on a cross, right? He's put into the tomb. They come three days later and they open the tomb and it's empty. Jesus rose again from the dead. And this is the foundation of our faith. This is the foundation. Easter is the foundation of our faith. The Bible says that if Christ was not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. It is the important thing. He showed his power over death and became a sacrifice uh, a sacrifice for us. If you are a person who has never heard this message before and you've maybe never thought about the fact that Jesus died for you so that you could live eternally with God, please talk to me after the sermon, after the sermon service, okay. the sermon, please talk to me after the sermon. I'm happy to talk with you further about what it means to put your faith in Jesus. But I think the question that we have today in our society, especially, is why did anyone have to die at all? Why can't God just accept everyone as they are? Why is there any idea of punishment or of um, you know, getting what you deserve for things you have done that are wrong. I think there are two things about God that are amazing and a little bit in conflict. God is a God of love, yes, but God is also a God of justice, right? 
God is a God of justice. And you know, I think we want justice. I think justice is imprinted on our hearts from God who created us. I have been to Germany. I have been to Dachau, which is a city where the Jews, there's still a barracks where they housed Jews during World War II. And you go there and you're there in silence because of what happened at that place. And your, and your heart, all these years later, still cries for justice. It's like Nuremberg wasn't enough. A few people were punished. But this was an atrocity committed, and it breaks your heart, and you want justice. I know for myself, one of the times that I felt so strongly a need for justice. In 1994, there was a woman called Susan Smith, definitely not our wonderful Susan Smith, who was in our, who was in our, our uh, community, but a woman named Susan Smith strapped her three-year-old and her 14-month-old into the back of their car seats and had the car go into a lake, and they drowned. And I've told you my kryptonite, right? I've told you what for me is difficult, and I just... I wanted justice for those babies, man. You know, and people were talking back and forth, but clearly she's sick. If she, I'm like, well, yeah, but she was aware enough to make up a story about a carjacking to get away with it, you know? And your heart cries out for justice. And I think this is in all of us that our heart cries out for justice. You know, I think it's even in our, our uh, pop culture, right? Because, you know, the Carrie Underwood song, Before He Cheats, right? Girl has a boyfriend cheat on her, and so she, like, messes up his car, <laughs> messes up his car, and describes in great detail every little part of the car that the guy clearly loved uh, messing it up. And while that's vigilantism and everything, we understand, we kind of chuckle at that because we have an underlying desire for justice. I think it's funny because I think... <laughs> What we want is justice for everybody else. <laughs> but for ourselves, can you just accept me the way I am? I am who I am. Love. See, God is a God of justice, and God is also holy. He's holy. And, you know, I think we don't really know what that word means so much anymore because, I mean, I love the Batman series, you know, that came out in the 60s with Robin always saying, holy guacamole, you know what I mean? things like that, and so we think of it as meaning oh my or something, just an expression, but holy means perfect without faults, and God himself is holy, and his standard is because he is perfect and holy, he can't be around sin. He can't be around. It is contrary to his nature, and it's not that he just can't be around the worst person you think of. He can't be around any sin. There's no partial credit. I was reminded when I was prepping for this about this professor I had in college. I was a math major. I know many of you are a little bit excited to learn that you're seeing a math major in the flesh because, you know, most women who go to college are looking for a good math major. <laughs> They're hoping that they find one. But we had this professor, Dr. Lewis, who was a fantastic teacher. He made really difficult concepts easier to understand, and his examples were great, and they're like, oh, I get that. But there were two things that were famous about Dr. Lewis. One was every day came to class with his can of classic Coke and his Campbell cigarettes in his pocket, and the other was 
There was no partial credit. None. If there was a problem on the test worth 15, there were two scores. There was 15 and there was zero. There was no 14. In fact, I knew an acquaintance of mine who had Dr. Lewis for what is one of the hardest classes when you're a math major, um, and that's theoretical calculus. And I know that just got everybody sweating, but you don't have to do it. I'm just telling you a story from it. So he gave on an exam a very hard proof. Everything in that class is proofs. And this acquaintance of mine, it was a hard one. She did a bang-up job. A lot of people didn't understand it at all. Her answer is like this long. But the very tippy, tippy top, whoa, <laughs> that was almost trouble. God's standard is perfection. I do not meet it. Um, <laughs> at the very tippy top, there was one little thing she left off. It's a little upside down capital A. Us nerds read it as for all or for every. So she did the whole thing right, solved a problem other people could, couldn't, but she left off this little Dr. Lewis read it and said, hmm, if you don't say for all epsilons, that means you've solved the problem for one epsilon. This is like a typo that she's left this on. Mm. Yeah, that's really nice effort. Zero. Zero. Dr. Lewis was fair, right? It's fair. It's wrong. Dr. Lewis was just, didn't matter who you were. His standard was high. His standard was no partial credit. God is the same. God is a God of justice, and he says, even a small bit of sin, I cannot be around sin because I am holy. He encourages us to be holy. But what God also is, is a God of love. And what he has done is said, yes, the penalty for sin is death, but I don't require that you pay it. We see in the Old Testament examples before Jesus came, the way that the nation received um, atonement for their sin was the sacrifice of animals. And the animal had to be perfect, without spot, without blemish is what it says, but it had to be a perfect animal of a certain kind And God allows the sacrifice of something perfect to pay the penalty for someone else who is not. And this is exactly what happened with Jesus. It was his limitless love saying, because I'm a God of justice, the penalty must be paid and death is your penalty. But I will send my son, I will send a part of myself to take this penalty for you. It's hard to contradict the justice and love, or they seem to contradict, especially in our society where everybody gets a trophy for showing up, right? I mean, it seems like they contradict, but actually it works together in God's perfect plan. He sent his son to pay the price for us. So what do we do about this limitless love? Well, what I'm going to encourage you to do this week is just to remember on Good Friday, remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. Remember, be thankful for, be worshipful for the sacrifice. So let's remember together on Good Friday. You know, uh, Laura and I went to a church in Indianapolis. They didn't even call it Good Friday. They called it Dark Friday because it was the day that Jesus was, you know, unfairly 
crucified, and they actually held a funeral service. It's the only day that they talked so much about that, but they had that on Dark Friday. How can we remember? I'd like to give you an example of a way I have used to remember. Uh, I've done this probably four or five times, and that is, this is something I just made up. So on on th- uh, Thursday night before Good Friday, I will typically watch The Passion of the Christ, and then I will fast on Friday and Saturday, and then have calories, food again on Sunday, um, on Easter. And I will tell you something I learned doing this. I, mean, you could, I generally use the time when I feel the hunger to pray or to be thankful. Um, but one Saturday, I think it was the first time I did this, we were having people over for Easter dinner, and Laura sent me to the store. And on the day before Easter, when everyone's getting family together, there is every sample of every piece of bread and every kind of cheese you've ever seen that they're trying to get me to buy some, so it's out there. And I remember thinking it wouldn't... Almost by habit, it's easy to forget that you're, that you're fasting. So almost by habit, you want to just pick it up and eat it, right? I mean, because it's just a habit and you're really hungry. And then I'm no, no, I have to not do this. And then I thought, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, one of the things that happened was they taunted him. Yeah, if you're the son of God, why don't you come on down? And he said, do you not know that if I asked it, my father would send legions of angels to remove me? And I thought, it was will. It was his will and his love for us that kept him up there. Can you imagine? I was hungry. I was just simply hungry. And I wanted to solve that physical problem. Can you imagine in the excruciating pain what every part of your body would have wanted to make that stop? And he could have called angels to pray. He didn't. He loved us that much. It was purposeful. And that made my appreciation, thankfulness, worship much stronger. So I feel like I learned something from that. Now, you may be looking at me and saying, yes, Stephen, so you look like you have more uh, reserves to be able to deal with a fast than I do. And that may be true. There's nothing magic about a way of remembering. If you like fasting, fast one day or don't or do something else. But do something on Good Friday, so that we can remember together the sacrifice and the love that God has, the, that Jesus had for us, the limitless love that he had for us. So in closing, just want to encourage you two things. One is to make a conscious effort to have the, the events of the cross not be just a symbol not just be wrote, oh, yes, yes, there's a thorny crown, there's a this, there's a that, but to remember what that really meant. And the other thing is to do something so that when you remember on Good Friday or Dark Friday coming up that you're prayerful, you're thankful for the salvation that has been offered to us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this act that is hard for us to even comprehend the love that it took to dying in our place. I just pray for each person in here that on Good Friday and throughout this holy week that they come closer to you, that they learn to appreciate the sacrifice in a new way that maybe they hadn't thought of before. Just help us as a church community and a faith community to reach out to others, to bring them so they can hear the end of the story, the best part of the story, the resurrection next week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.